Heavenly Father, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts as we close this season of Epiphany and go into Lent. We ask, Lord, that we would take the light of Christ with us through that journey as we probe into our own hearts and souls, as we look at things that are not of you that need to be changed, as your light comes through us, pierces us, we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful, made so by your Holy Spirit, to be refined by you and to proclaim you and to listen to your voice. Amen. Please be seated. From childhood's hour, I have not been. As others were, I have not seen. As others saw, I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source, I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken. My heart to joy, the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. That's a poem by the title Alone by Edgar Allan Poe of the 19th century. Um, and I want to ask you this morning, have you ever felt isolated or alone? Have you ever been exhausted? Feeling like you can't take another day? Feeling like another hour is so burdensome? It can be terrifying, can't it? It can be crippling even. I think that Poe captures some of it here in his poem, the depth of aloneness, the depth that's not just connected with solitude, but the depth of feeling like no one is like you and no one can identify with you and see you for who you are. I want to look at the Old Testament reading today from 1 Kings 19. It's a little bit different of a sermon than is necessarily preached on transfiguration, although um, the church does us a favor in the liturgical year and puts the transfiguration text here at the beginning of Lent and also in August, so we get it twice, and lets us look at some of these other themes. So open with me, if you will, to the Old Testament reading for today. 1 Kings 19. And I'm going to test your uh, Old Testament knowledge a little bit, so it's probably helpful for you, I'm sure it was for me, to uh, have your Bible open or to have one of the pew Bibles open if there's one near you in order to make sense of this passage, because we're going to dig into 1 Kings 19 but in order to dig into it, we have to look at what's going on around it. What's going on with the prophet Elijah? Or, sorry, Elijah. What gives? Why is he so low? Look at verse 1. Where is Elijah at this point? In a cave. He's in a cave, absolutely. Literally at a low, deep in the ground, right? 
And do you know why he's in this cave? Do you know what's going on? If you look at the beginning of chapter 18, uh, again, if you have your Bible open, you can see this. What's going on that Elijah is in the cave? Just look at the, uh, the beginning of chapter 19. I'm sure it's one of the subtitles, the, the titles there. <laughs> yeah, people are trying to kill him. Exactly. Elijah flees from Jezebel, my Bible says. He's fleeing for his life. Anybody else have anything? Oh, you get the idea. He's running for his life, and he's down in this cave hiding. Now, you know, you might think that's very logical. And yet, Elijah is hiding after having done something great, or after having witnessed, I should say, something great, being an agent of Almighty God. What's going on? Well, verse 10 tells us specifically what's going on with Elijah. Again, this is verse 10 of chapter 19. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's a kind of loneliness, unlike any kind of loneliness, isn't it? When people are coming after your life because of the fact that you've spoken for the Lord, you've been loyal to God. He's alone, he thinks. In verse 4, exactly. I'll get there, just a second. <laughs> verse 4, exactly. He says, I've had enough, doesn't he? Yeah. It's interesting that, that, that God comes to Elijah here in the cave and if you look at um, what's going on back in chapter 18 now, Elijah has been summoned by the Lord to go up to the mountain. So he comes to the mountain and he basically challenges the prophets and priests of the god Baal to a standoff. Okay? So they come to the mountain and Elijah says to them, we're going to make two altars and put two sacrifices on each altar. And if your God, Baal, is real, you have him send fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice on the altar. And guess what happens? Baal does not consume the sacrifice upon the altar. And then Elijah says, and my God is real. And to prove the point, he takes buckets of water and dumps them over the sacrifice, makes the altar completely wet, pours a moat around the altar itself, and begins to pray. And the fire of God, we're told, comes down and consumes not only the sacrifice itself, but the altar itself, and just obliviates the whole surface, evaporating all the water. That's the experience that Elijah's coming off of here. And now he's running for his life in the cave. 
Why? Well, because he's challenged the evil king Ahab and the evil queen Jezebel. You might recall those names. People that did not do what was good in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're told earlier in Scripture. And this king and queen of Israel have abandoned God. They've turned to Baal. And so they don't take very kindly to Baal having been defeated and the prophets executed. Why then, again, is Elijah so low? He's witnessed this wonderful act of God, this brilliant show of power. Well, Free Church of Scotland pastor and scholar James Hastings observes that Elijah was a man of highs and lows. So there's something of temperament here. He goes from this amazing demonstration on Mount Carmel to sinking deep into the cave. And we see God ask him in verse 9, essentially, what are you doing? Is it not a stretch to say in verse 9 that God is asking him, why are you so low? Look with me at what's in your bullets in there. 1 Kings 19, 9. There, came to a cave, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And what does Elijah answer? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Now, this is one of those words in Hebrew that's hard to translate. But the idea behind here is the technical sense of jealousy. That the God of hosts is his only God. The God of hosts is the God to which he is loyal. It's the God to which he has given his homage and has a jealous faith. You might also translate this, therefore, loyalty, a loyal faith, or zealousness, a zealous faith. And the fact is, it's true. Elijah's put himself in great danger. He's been on the front lines. He's courageously and boldly been obedient to God for years. And most recently, he's confronted that power couple of Ahab and Jezebel and, 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 um, and, and gone face to face with them. There does exist for we humans something called cowardice. And yet, Elijah is no coward. That's not what's going on here. It's also not merely that he's in solitude or alone. That's not quite what's going on here. But there's something deeper that Elijah's struggling with that I think we all struggle with to one degree or another. And that is what I call the three Ds. The three Ds. I should probably like patent this and write a book. Right? I could make lots of money, but I'm too undisciplined, another D, <laughs> to do that. Um, the three Ds are, he's, we struggle with disappointment, we struggle with despondency, and if we're not careful, we struggle with the sin of despair. Disappointment, despondency, and if we're not careful, the sin of despair. There's another D called depression, which is a technical term that gets used untechnically by many, but depression is technically a chemical imbalance in the, in the brain that makes someone low. That's not what I'm talking about here, just to be clear. 
I'm talking about disappointment and despondency and despair. What is disappointment? Well, the dictionary has a great definition. It says that disappointment is being, quote, defeated in expectation or hope. Defeated in expectation or hope. What's despondency? Despondency is feeling or showing extreme discouragement. Do you see how one flows into the other? Being defeated, feeling or showing extreme discouragement is despondency. And despair, the one that's actually a sin, is utter loss of hope. Utter loss of hope. Why is it a sin for the Christian to despair? Why, is the, why are the first two not a sin but the last one? Because a Christian has no right to utter, be utterly lost and have no hope. The Christian has Jesus Christ no matter what. Though things assail him, though he die, he has Christ. And therefore, it is a sin for we Christians to fall into despair because that's an act of the will saying, God, you can't save me. God, you can't help me. I'm beyond your help. And yet, we do legitimately struggle with despair because we just struggle with disappointment and despondency, which are movements of the heart. The first of the two are the reactions that we often have through life. And they can even be brought on by more trivial things, can't they? Think about the last time you were disappointed. You might have been disappointed in a person. I thought he or she was better than that. I thought they wouldn't do that to me. That can be trivial. That can be heavy and betray, heavy betrayal. But think also of the things in daily life that disappoint you, right? Dang it, I thought I'd get through the, the five-point point list that I made in the beginning of Saturday. I thought that I'd take the garbage out that I would get the painting done, and that I would, you know, feed the cat, whatever it happens to be. I try to feed my cats all the time, for the record. Not meeting the goals. Sometimes we're, we're hardest on ourselves with disappointment. And yet despondency can creep in too, where we feel that we're we feel that, like we're stuck in extreme discouragement. You know, sometimes disappointment can be a good thing. Disappointment can spur you on. If I didn't accomplish that task, it can make me ask myself, why did I not accomplish that task? Did I, was I, you know, doing something? Was I getting distracted? Was I not focusing on what I was supposed to do? And then I can amend my life and change that. But despondency is the next level. Despondency is when we're feeling extreme discouragement, when the disappointments start to pile up in life. You've all had it happen to you. I just can't do anything right today. You come to the end of the day saying, it's a real feeling, right? It can be very difficult. Back to Elijah, however. These two are not his problem, interestingly. He didn't fail. He did something that no other prophet could do, confronting Jezebel and Ahab. He wasn't just disappointed, although he is disappointed. 
and he's despondent, but he is teetering on the edge of despair. Let me read for you what's going on here. 1 Kings 19, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he runs away from his servant even. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no longer better than my father's. Take now my life, for I am now no better than my father's. What's getting at Elijah? The key phrase there, if you're a Bible underliner, I am no better than my father's. Why? Because despite all of his courage and bravery, despite his zealousness for the Lord, Israel, God's people, has not repented. Despite all of his work, God's people have not come to the light. Again, commenter Hastings says, Elijah imagined that by one decisive stroke, the idolatry of Baal had been completely overthrown and that God would now reign supreme in the hearts of the people. His spirits had risen as high as a great mountain on which that memorable decision had been effected. But the excitement wore away and he saw, as so many besides him have seen, that no great spiritual reformation is wrought by one stroke however decisive. The example that God provides is a wonderful thing, and yet, it's not enough. It's not enough to change. And Elijah feels himself a failure. But this is a good example for the church of God, for us, because as individual followers of Jesus, we too have these disappointments in life. We too fall in times of despondency. But while Elijah teeters on despair, and he teeters on despair, he does one thing that's really important. Do you know what it is? He keeps going. He keeps going to Mount Horeb. Again, this is right before our text begins, verse 8 of chapter 19. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food that an angel gave him for 40 days or for 40 nights and 40 days to Horeb, the mount of God. What's the significance of Mount Horeb? Again, I'm testing your Old Testament knowledge here. What's the significance of Mount Horeb? What goes on there? Hint, it's a mountain. (laughs) No, not a volcano. Good guess, but not a volcano. Yeah. Do you see where Elijah's going? That's just one thing that goes on, actually. Um, It's where Moses is given the Ten Commandments. It's where God gives drink to the thirsty people of Israel in the wilderness. Huh? It's where God chooses to meet and encounter his chosen people. 
And finally, it's actually where Moses, way back at the beginning, sees God in the burning bush. So do you see what's going on with the geography here? Despite everything that Elijah's dealing with, he's going to the Lord. He's going to where God meets his people. He's not defeated so much as to be distracted from God, even though he's got issue with God. I know that all of ourselves, all of we, have found ourselves disappointed with life's situations, and we've fallen into despondency. despondency. Maybe we've even been frustrated with where we are with the Lord. Maybe we have come to the same brick wall again and again in our sanctification and said, I just can't get over this issue, Lord. We've all been to that place at one point or another, right? And as we go into Lent, we'll probably be there again. Often we don't hear the voice of God. But often we don't hear the voice of God because we've turned away from him or because we've cut ourselves off by not reading his word because we're angry at him or taking time to pray because I'm just not prayerful right now. I don't want to present this to God. I'm angry at him. I'm not going to take that to the Lord. We cut ourselves off because we allow our disappointment and our despondency to turn to despair and ultimately what that is is forsaking a loving God who wants to be with you no matter what who wants to be with you in all your circumstances, who wants to be with you when you're angry with him, who wants to be with you when you're doubting him, who wants to be with you as long as you're coming to him. And even when we don't try, he wants to be with us. But so often we cut ourselves off from that. We neglect his word, we neglect prayer, we neglect his body, we neglect the church. We say, I'm not presentable, I can't come to church today. I'm a, I'm a hot mess Well, friends, that's the exact time when you need to be here. That's the exact time when you need to be hearing God's word. That's the exact time when you need to be being fed from his table. That's the time when you need to be connected to his people. And you see what God is doing here with Elijah and 1 Kings. What does God do? Again, at the very beginning here, you probably overlooked it. Maybe not. First Kings 19, verse 9. And behold, who came to him? Who came to Elijah? And behold, who? The word of the Lord. You see, you just want to skip over and say, oh yeah, it's God talking. Who is the word of the Lord? Jesus Christ. The word of God, oh, word of God incarnate. A wisdom from on high. We sang it around the gospel, right? Just see that. Jesus comes to Elijah, a pre-incarnate version of Christ. And first of all, he asks him what he's doing. Second of all, he tells him, Elijah, it's actually not as bad as you think. There's still 70 faithful people in Israel. You're not alone. You feel alone, but you're not alone. And finally, he gives him direction. He tells him what to do. And he feeds him on the bread of angels. Now, think about that. Direction, worship, feeding, encouragement. 
Are those things you find in anywhere outside of the church together? No. It's only at the church, it's only in coming to the, the table of the Lord to hearing from his word. It's only gathering with his people where you can get that fourfold encouragement from God. It's here where God meets us in our lowest hour. So what's stopping you? What's holding you up? As your priest and fellow Christian, I beg you, do not allow circumstances, do not allow your disappointments and your despondency to shut God out because he's never shut you out and never will. Do not listen to the lies of the adversary that tells you that those people don't care for you or that God doesn't care for you or that you're beyond all hope. Rather, ask for help. Push into God in those difficult times. I know it's hard, but those are the times when duty and discipline kick in. Those are the times we need to read, pray, have communion, be with the body. And in addition to being here to get that, those are the times when we need to surround those who are hurting in our midst and minister Christ to them too. I've heard repeatedly for the past month, a couple months actually, people in this congregation say, nobody knows me. Nobody loves me. Nobody pays attention to me when I come and go. Friends, you've heard this before. You're going to hear it again. We are a small congregation, and we will not succeed at being the kingdom of God if we're not looking to one another for help, if we're not approachable to each other, if we're not taking the intentional step outside of our comfort zone and talking to that person that isn't like us, that person that might not have children even though we have children, that person that might have children and we don't have children, that person that's single, that person who uh, might not be our age, that person that might not be our political affiliation, we will not succeed if we don't reach to one another and minister Jesus to each other. I challenge you. Number one, don't allow yourself to be cut off. But number two, for heaven's sake, don't cut off other people from God by ignoring them and by not ministering to them because you might be in a hurry to get out of here and, or you, know, you might have a task to accomplish. We, we all have things to do. There's nothing more important than being here. There's nothing more important than hearing or speaking the word of Jesus saying, come to me all ye that travail and are heavy laden overburdened, and I will give you rest. Let us listen to him. Let us speak because he's in us. Let us seek Jesus. Amen.